Welcome to Once Upon a Disney, an analytical yet fun-loving look at Disney narrative filmography from the 20th century. I'm Andy Redwine, and with me, as always, is my co-host and expedition professor, Larry Brenner. How are you, Larry? I'm doing great, Andy. How are you doing? Hey, I'm swell. We have a returning guest star. This is our first returning champion. We have Brett Neethamer. Brett is uh, currently residing in Austin, Texas. He is the co-founder of The Holy Goof, where he does reviews of movies called Brett's Flicks. In addition to that, he is currently in charge of uh, Elements of Story at Black Knight Gaming. And if you're interested in finding out about that, you can go to Black Knight, just one K, Black Knight, as in evening, dash gaming.com. Brett, we're so glad to have you back. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me again. It's so much fun to come back and, and just have fun riffing with you, too. I miss you guys. It's been crazy with everything going on. So this is a great breath of fresh air for me. Brett, why did you choose this movie, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea? Okay, so this is like a childhood favorite of mine. And this was like Disney's equivalent and stuff. And I was just like the giant squid scene and like all that stuff. It's a a movie that I have very fond memories of. And it had been a while since I had rewatched it. And I really wanted to rewatch it. It's different than your typical Disney film. So that's kind of something new that I thought would be fun to explore. Very cool. I love how you say when you were young, you loved Godzilla movies, as if that went away as uh, time passed. Not at all. It's only grown. I know it has. I know it has. Okay, yeah. Some key facts to set the stage here for 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. 20,000 Leagues equals 69,046 miles and change. So since the diameter of the Earth is 7,915 miles, we either have to suspend our judgment as to the depth of the Earth or assume this title describes the length of the Nautilus's journey and not the depth of its actual voyage. The movie is an adaptation of Jules Verne's French novel, very popular around the world. And for 1954, this movie is ambitious. There is no expense spared in this movie, and the Budget and overage goes to about $9 million. Now that's about, in in 1954, $9 million translates into over $90 million in 2021. So this movie for Disney absolutely needs to be a hit. Disney is taking a real risk on this movie and at the same time opening on a certain theme park in Anaheim, California. So there's a lot on the table here. 20,000 Leagues is one of the first features that's shot in CinemaScope. There are special camera casings that are invented for the undersea footage. The Disney Animation Studio itself is completely retrofitted. Studio space was rented over at Universal and 20th Century Fox. And over 400 crew members went to Jamaica and the Bahamas to shoot various scenes. And this ambitious gamble was actually a really big payoff. It does $28.2 million at the domestic box office, which translates to nearly $290 million in today's dollars. This is a biggie. It's hard to understate just how big this movie is. It competes with movies like Bing Crosby's White Christmas, Bogart's The Cane Mutiny, and it definitely brings its own star power. James Mason had two huge movies this year in 1954 with 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea and A Star is Born, a movie you may have heard of, right? Kirk Douglas had just come off three Oscar-nominated roles in The Bad and the Beautiful in 1952, and he's box office gold. Paul Lucas had been acting in movies as since the 1920s, 
And he won the Academy Award for Best Actor aside Betty Davis in Watch on the Rhine in 1943. And then we have Peter Lorre, who might be one of the most well-known character actors in cinema with roles in 66 films prior to this one, including notables such as The Maltese Falcon, Arsenic and Old Lakes, and of course, Casablanca. So there's a lot there. (laughs) This is an epic, epic movie, and it's Disney's first epic movie. And I think pre-production, Brett, you said, this isn't a movie that is like typical Disney, and it's not. I think they're setting themselves up as more of a, this is a universal picture. This is a 20th Century Fox picture. And Disney is proving once again that they can not only play with the big boys, but they can do things like film underwater and innovate in ways that nobody's ever considered before. Yeah, absolutely. It's and everything they had done before was not legitimate filmmaking. But at the time, studio, and this is their first break into blockbuster type filmmaking. This is the precursor to Pirates of the Caribbean and John Carter. You know, they're competing with companies just like 20th Century Fox and Universal. You're absolutely right. This is the start of it all. Well, yeah, exactly. It's really hard to undersell how big this movie is in 1954. And again, you you mentioned Pirates of the Caribbean. I think it's easy to say that this movie was definitely like the Star Wars of its generation. It's a sci-fi thriller. The movie wins two Oscars for Best Art Direction, for Color, and Best Special Effects. I think that's pretty clear as to why that happens. And that's a great parallel to compare this to Star Wars. Because... Listen, I'm going to be coming in at this movie with a critical eye because I'm coming in at it from a perspective of what we would do as screenwriters today if we were writing this movie, what choices we would make. And a lot of the choices we would make today are not the choices we would make back in 1954. But the thing about Star Wars is it is not perfectly written. Occasionally, if you browse the Internet, you might find someone who has a small critique of a Star Wars movie and says like, hey, what were they thinking with this? It's no matter how much you critique Star Wars, Star Wars is still amazing if you look at it through the lens of its time. And while I'm going to have some serious critiques of 20,000 Leagues, I am sure if I was in the audience in 1954, I watched the movie with my jaw dropping and maybe all of these things that today are not great visual effects back then, were probably mind-altering. Oh, for sure. In its opening in 1955, Disneyland allows guests to walk through the actual sets from the film, which is sort of a precursor to walking through, we might go to Hollywood Studios today and walk through uh, some of the Star Wars exhibitions. And those sets, oh, the production design in that movie, it's so good. Like, the, if the sets in there are incredible. It really is gorgeous. There's an actual submarine. It's 200 feet long. So, and some of us might remember the 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea submarine voyage ride at Disney, Walt Disney World in Orlando. The ride I do not want to get stuck on because that submarine feels claustrophobic. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And today, uh, Tokyo Disney Sea has an attraction based on the film. And Larry, I think you've been on that. It's not just an attraction, Andy. Tokyo Disney Sea, uh, the center land of Tokyo Disney Sea is Volcania. There is a volcano that erupts just about every five minutes. You can eat in the commissary, and the food that they serve you is the food that the captain serves. Like you can get these jellyfish puddings, and everything there is is sea life. Like 
you know, and I hadn't just watched the movie, so I didn't realize that till we watched it, that we ate at this place with all this weird seafood-themed dishes. It's the food that Nemo serves. And there's also an amazing... They have the 20,000 Leagues ride. It is a gazillion times better than the one that we had back in Disneyland and Disney World back in the day. And there's also a journey to the center of the Earth ride, which is also amazing. But it also feels like Disney Sea is built around this property, that everything else connects to this volcano and the works of Jules Verne. That's so cool. He was such an incredible visionary and like so influential to every genre of like media. It's crazy to think like even if this movie wasn't given the budget and the proper, you know, like money to in effects to do it, it still at its core would probably have been halfway decent simply because it's a Jules Verne story, and he was just so inherently good at telling these incredible tales. So I'm going to do something I don't normally do on this podcast, and I'm going to give a little bit of a mini lecture. So I think to appreciate this movie, again, we you have to watch the movie in a way that a viewer from 1954 might have seen the film. So if you go into this movie watching it today and thinking, oh, I'm going to see like something like The Avengers, like you are not, Right. However, you are going to see what ha- what passes for a blockbuster in 1954. This is an adaptation of a book. And while novels can tell stories from multiple perspectives and take several hours to digest, movies really don't have this luxury. I did some reading from someone named Thomas Leitch. He's a professor at the University of Delaware. And he's done a lot of study into books being adapted into giant features in the 1950s, which seems like a really interesting niche to study. But he talks about how the rise of television makes a novel's adaptation a more literary experience. So people who have heard about the book, even if they haven't read it, that's the target audience here. They're aware that there's this thing called 20,000 Leagues of the Sea, and I don't really read books, but I might sit down for two hours and watch this thing, right, and get everything I need to get out of it. And so there becomes this idea that the adaptation has to match the book. Well, it's not like the book. It's nothing like the book. And you'll hear people say that even today, like, oh, I read this book, and the book is better. Well, again, we don't really have the luxury in a movie to do what a book can do in a 16-hour read, right? It's a little different. So the structure of these adaptations really allow people to settle in for a pseudo-academic experience. And they're going to talk about themes from the get-go that speak into the experience of this particular audience. So we see a book, but there's no narration from the outset. We're going to read about the avenging monster on the loose, and then we're going to see it. I like how it starts with a book. Right. It's the opening thing is a is a book opening. It's literally saying this is a literary like adaptation of this story. Yeah. And while that's typical of Disney books, you know, the book opens and we're reading it, usually there's some narration to go with it, but there's no narration in this part. We're going to read about the avenging monster and then we like I said, we see it. No one really wants to see the monster and take it on. In 1954, This is going to echo the experiences of Americans who resist going to war with Japan and Germany until the threat's just imminent. And these are also audiences dealing with the brutal realities of the Truman Doctrine and the Cold War. And I don't think you can watch this film and and place yourself that opening scene where they're in the town going, I don't want to go. He wants to go. We're offering you double. These are realities that our audience is facing. 
It's also very interesting. And the explosion at the end is definitely a nuclear bomb. And its ship is very obviously supposed to be nuclear energy. So I feel like actually we're talking a bit here about our Manish Tana, our, our point of attack a little bit, which is why do we start where we start? And in this movie, I'm going to suggest if we were looking at this from modern screenwriting perspective, it starts in a baffling place. So my youngest son has watched every movie that we've done for this podcast. This is the one where he tapped out at minute seven, because by minute seven, we were in this town. People are talking, but not much is happening. We're not even at the ocean adventure part of it yet. We're still in town. So this movie opens up, as Andy said, with this newspaper uh, footage that there's a monster. We see some footage of the monster. Then we go to town and people are talking about the monster. And we meet, although he doesn't immediately appear to be our leading man unless we know the celebrities of the time, Ned Land, as he's escorting two what look like dancing girls through the town, and he gets into a fight with the people talking about a monster because he doesn't believe in monsters. And then we cut to some other characters. We cut to the Professor Aranax and his apprentice. And they're approached by reporters. And the reporters ask them if the monster could possibly be real. And the professor says, well, you know, I don't know, but I guess it's possible. There's a me Then we cut to the newspapers all around the world saying he has said they definitely exist which he did not. And frankly, you don't need to interview the man in order to lie about what he said. And then the government comes to the professor and his apprentice and say, listen, you've been stuck here in San Francisco. Do you, you really want to get to, quote unquote, the Orient? How about you go on this ship and see if there's a monster as we sail from one place to another? This is the first 15 minutes of the movie. Technically, I think you're right, Brett. I think this is the inciting incident, but it doesn't feel like an inciting incident because then we're on the ocean for a while and we watch them look out on the ship and they sail and they sail and they see a whale and they see dolphins and they see sea life and they sail and um, Ned Land takes off his shirt gratuitously to shave. He sings a song that has nothing to do with the story at all. And then the captain of the ship says, I guess there is no monster. Let's go back home. I'll drop you off. And we're at like minute 35 at this point. And at this point, I texted Andy and I was like, this is just a drill. This is not an actual movie. Had there been an actual movie, something would have occurred at this particular moment. Well, everyone knows that this movie is going to take place at sea and that there was movie making done underwater, but Disney's really going to make them wait for the spectacle. I actually, oddly enough, I actually felt that the first half of the film had really good pacing as compared to the second half of the film. I'm going against the grain here, but I genuinely was like surprised. But for 1954, I was very surprised by how quickly that first half went. But then for reasons that we will get into uh, a little later on, I think the back half like meanders and it doesn't know exactly where it's going. It doesn't have a, a point of like a trajectory in terms of the storyline. Like characters know where they're going, but they don't bother telling the audience like what's going on. 
kind of thing. And I think it, it comes from, like you were saying, Andy, it being an adaptation of the novel where it like kind of, it's not like a quest movie or like about one character kind of like going through a specific ordeal. It's more about, we end up meeting this character, Captain Nemo, and then we, we go on an adventure with Captain Nemo. And while we're on the adventure, we slowly realize that maybe Nemo's not as cool as we thought he was. And then we kind of end the movie, like, in a way. Like, that's kind of, like, how the film goes about it. This is my key point, Brett, that, that you just touched upon. The movie posits that the professor and his apprentice going on the ship is the inciting incident. But it actually doesn't incite the plot because they sail around for a good 10, 15 minutes looking at stuff. The inside, this movie is really about Captain Nemo. The inciting incident of this movie is the professor, his assistant, and Ned go aboard the Nautilus and meet Captain Nemo. That is really where the movie happens. If we were redoing this today, we have at most 15 minutes to get them to Nemo. We don't have time to be in town. We don't have time for your friendly government man to come in, compliment you, and negotiate your way onto the ship. We need to be on that ship. We need to be looking for the monster, and we need to get our ship blown up and get aboard the submarine. No more than 15 minutes. This movie takes us till about minute 40. So at 1530, the monster's been sighted, and the non-believers are hit with a warship sees him, they hit the monster, and then the monster turns around to gather steam and then capsizes the boat, right? And so Ned becomes, I think the crash is the, is the inciting incident. At 1530, so right about that time is when Ned sung his song, the, we've got, and Ned's song, by the way, serves as kind of the theme music, so, and it's a nice little device because whenever he's on the screen underwater, and you don't know who all these people are because they're all in suits, you know it's Ned because it plays his theme music. So that's the device that we have, right? My apologies to the movie if my time coding on this is off. I do it by how it feels. It, it feels like a, an eternity. I, I will give you this. And again, if you compare this movie to, say, other epics of the period, I'm thinking about like Quo Vadis or David and Bathsheba or even Ivanhoe. These are all movies. And then later on, you know, like the Ten Commandments or Spartacus. These are all movies that have these giant kind of thing. And we ease into it because people are like, it's really long. If you miss the first 15 minutes, it's fine. <laughs> like, well, it's fascinating because it's like, this is how film has evolved because back in the 50s, this is all we had. So you could tell your tale however long or short you wanted. And nowadays we have screens. We have to constantly be like, all right, you have 15 minutes. You have 30 seconds to catch your audience's eye. Like I recently watched Lawrence of Arabia and I'm ashamed to say that it took me nearly 30 years of my life to watch Lawrence of Arabia all the way through. I just hadn't seen it. I knew it was so important to film and I like had known a lot about it, but I just, I had never sat down for the full four and a half hours of the movie. And it is so worth it. And it's a beautiful, beautiful piece of cinema. But like, there's a reason that people don't make those kinds of movies anymore. And it's because like that movie, it's part of it. It's not even partly about the story. Part of those kinds of movies is literally sitting in this environment. Like how much, like if you did Lawrence of Arabia, you know, none of those Vista shots 
would be there because the studio would be like, why are you sitting on this sand dune for 30 seconds? And your excuse can't be because look at how beautiful it is. And these like, are folks gonna who have go, not right, seen the they, world. Like, they do not have giant pictures of landscapes. There's no internet. There's right, nothing. Exactly, yeah. I mean, Disney's real life adventures are enormously popular because people have never seen these animals before in these environments. It's like this whole brand new environment that is like being explored for the first time. Yeah. So it may seem kind of dull to us now, but again, back then it's like, you're a captive audience. You're not going to look at your screen, as you said, and be like, okay, I'm 15 seconds in. Uh, okay. Eh, there's a monster. He doesn't look that good. Okay. What else? What's on Netflix, right? You're not going to make that choice. <laughs> well, just to bring this back to the plot, because we got a ways to go and I want to make sure we get through it, right? So we move into what we would consider rising action. So we've hooked up with Nemo at this point. And I think this is the rare movie for me where I have no idea where the movie intends to take us now that we're on the submarine. We're going on a journey, but this isn't like The Wizard of Oz where we're clearly off to see the wizard or we've got a destination in mind. Nemo has a destination in mind he's not sharing with the other characters. And so the movie starts to feel a little more episodic. We have a sequence in which Nemo takes the professor to an island, and we learn about Nemo's history and how Nemo had to escape man's inhumanity and rebel. We have a sequence where Nemo attacks another ship and sinks it, and the professor calls it murder. Ned has a sequence where he and the professor's assistant try to get some gold back to the ship and a shark goes to attack them and Nemo saves them from the shark. But none of this seems to be heading anywhere in particular until we get to the movie's climax. Throughout the rising action, Ned in particular has been trying to come up with a plan to escape from Nemo. And I don't know what you guys consider the climax to be. For me, it isn't the moment where we're actually 20,000 leagues under the sea. That's cool. It's cool when the octopus attacks the submarine. But I think the climax of this movie, and if you've got a different one, let me know, because is where we get to Volcania. Nemo's gotten to Volcania, and at that point he sees that all the world's governments have beaten him there. And he has to make his decision. Is the technology that Nemo has created going to fall into the wrong hands? So by climax, you mean, are you talking about act two climax or finale climax? No, I'm talking like the big kahuna The we are crossing from act two to act three. Like this is where the forces of good and evil will fight. This is where the movie feels like this is the big event that we've gotten to. I agree, because I think the squid and I think all that counts as your, like, quote unquote, all is lost. Your dark night of the soul is like because that this is what happens when man delves too deep into nature. And this is the consequence of that. And then when you break out of that, it's now we have to deal with man's inhumanity with man again and whether or not man can be trusted with the technology I agree with you. I think because his whole thing at the end is the argument of like, you were supposed to be here as an emissary for me. And now all of that is blown up because of Ned and him blabbing and the government showing up. Now, why Nemo didn't bother telling him uh, some of this stuff beforehand, I don't know. 
that would have helped. But no, it's you're right. It's the hubris of Nemo coming to a head and like that whole it's the theological climax that ends in a big nuclear explosion. So And I think and I'm not sure what the intentions were in the in the filmmaking of this. But trying to look at this movie and say, this is the plot, which is what we've just done, doesn't lend itself to a nice, tidy summary. I I was wondering while I was watching it, and I don't have like the smart thing to say, but it feels like someone smarter than I am would make the argument that the whole story is actually about Nemo's soul. And therefore, the climax would be Nemo's crisis conscious part point. The problem for me with that, and I think it's probably the intentionality of both the book and the movie adaptation, is Nemo doesn't let us in enough to his inner workings for us to actually track that journey. I think the actor is doing the work. I think there it's we're seeing glimpses of it through a very good portrayal, but the but we're seeing it from the outside, and we have no way in. Now, I have a thought here as a way in, and I think that the key to this is Ned. Ned starts out as a non-believer, and then he sees the monster, and then he sort of happens upon this thing, and he's like, hey, I'm going to take my, I'd rather take my chances on the open sea. But the professor's inquisitiveness kind of wins him over. Ned just wants to go to Saigon to the girls, right? (laughs) But the professor really wants to find the monster. And so there's kind of this push-pull between the two of them as to what happens. They're captured. And again, it's just, it's a, Ned finds the treasure. Ned says, I could lighten this ship. The professor says, you're going to get us all killed if you keep antagonizing him. Ned says, Nemo's cracked while you're feeding him sugar. I'll be looking for a muzzle. And the dramatic question is, will Ned escape? I think later it's what's Ned going to do if he stays and is he going to be the emissary that battles evil? So he's sort of the unlikely hero. The problem is, as like you said, Larry, it's that episodic nature. If we're going to get in there with Ned and we're not going to, we're just kind of feels like we're meandering all over the place. Then we should stay with Ned the whole time because he's the most, he's got the most to, to gain by being by defeating Nemo. It's interesting because the I mean this is definitely a byproduct of it being more of a strict adaptation instead of changing certain things for your medium because in a novel you can absolutely follow three four different characters uh, simultaneously going through something like this. But yeah, I noticed we start off and there's Ned in the streets and then we go to the professor for almost a full 10 minutes. And then we cut back and Ned's there for like 30 more seconds. And then we go back to the professor and then we go back and Ned does his song and then we, you know, whatever. And the professor is the one that finds Nemo's ship. We as the audience are following the professor exploring the ship and then Ned just like he's off screen. Hello, like kind of thing. And like we watch. Oh, now he has found us. And it's like it's interesting because it's it's the way it's set up is almost like the professor is our way in and then Ned is our way out. Because the professor is the inquisitive mind. He's the one that's like, I want to see where this goes. But then when it starts getting dark, Ned is the one who is more of like a real world thinker. Like, you know, he, he's from the streets or, you know, he knows how to handle himself a lot more than the professor does. And like, he's the one that recognizes Nemo's going crazy. I need to come up with a plan. And like, he's the one that's actively trying to get out. 
And so he's the one, he's the hero to get us out of the situation, whereas the professor is the one that gets us into the situation. And like, so I just thought that was interesting. No, Brett, that's brilliant. I love it. I want to come back to it in just two seconds when we talk about Ned as a character. I just want to get us out of plot a little bit. So have this climax. Nemo is shot. His crew decides to go down with the ship with him in the submarine. Ned, the professor, don't really want to go down with the submarine. They're not that. They may have gone on a journey with Nemo, but there was no talk of like going down with the ship for them. We don't really get much of a falling action once they escape, right? It's just they they leave and the professor says, I know you're happy we escaped, but what a great loss to the world that we don't have this technology in a responsible fashion, that we didn't prove that we could use it responsibly, that we didn't actually, we have our lives and that's not nothing, but we could have had something so much more. And then we're out. We never see the professor and Ned get to where they want to go. Not that I needed to, but we're just out. Again, the story really suffers from not knowing, having one through line that we watch and, and someone's point of view that we watch this through and make this choices about and have dramatic questions about. And again, in a lot of ways, Brett, I think you're absolutely right. I think Aaron X lets, gets us into these scenes and then Ned is the one that fights his way out of them. So it makes it difficult to go, okay, well, what do they want? Ned just wants to fight and get out. But I think when that island, getting to the climax, I think when that island explodes in a mushroom cloud, it there becomes very apparent as to how much power Nemo really had and how they were just all like, oh my gosh, he's far worse than we thought. And it's interesting because the end with the nuclear explosion, with the statement about us using this technology responsibly, Carl Zeman, filmmaker from the same time period, he did an adaptation of Jules Verne's material called Invention for Destruction. And that one, like that's what that movie's about, is the technology and how it goes wrong. It feels like a theme here, but it doesn't feel like a through line. It's just kind of an element of the story here. Whereas Carl Zeman kind of made that the focal point of like his storyline. I mean, they has to stop him, right? But, but Nemo says things like a power greater than mine is going to make this impossible for me to do this. And so that like there, but for the grace of God, go I, right? And so it's, it's kind of a twisted way of saying that. It's a head scratcher. Like the ending's a head scratcher for me, for sure. What is it that we're saying? Because we do have this technology, not just 10 years earlier, we used it in war. Let's transition to characters just a little bit, because I do want to have a conversation about Ned. Oh, let's do. Well, let's jump right in, Larry. What do you think about Ned? So Ned is sort of the character who isn't supposed to be in the movie. What I mean by that is Nemo is begrudgingly taking Ned along. But the person he was interested in is the professor. He's the stowaway. He is. He feels like the stowaway. He's the accidental person who's brought aboard the submarine. What we've seen from Ned is that Ned is a lover of life. He's got that joie de vivre. He's going from harbor to harbor. He's not really planning for the future. We see him getting into fights, but without a, without a second thought. Uh, the ladies love him. He likes to sing. and He's that stereotypical like 1950s manly man sailor type. Like it, It's all very much like, oh, the sailor's like for me, like kind of like character. But that's exactly it. He's kind of leading man and comic relief at the same time in this movie. He's doing double duty. 
And um, that's interesting to me. But I wonder if, when we're looking at Ned, Ned symbolically represents something in this movie. Ned is the proof that Nemo is wrong. And my argument for this is, Nemo's worldview is that mankind as a whole is savage and violent and cruel and petty. And that is informed by the life that Nemo has lived. He's not, he's earned that perspective, certainly. But the reason he's willing to take the professor on board is I think Nemo has this perspective that human beings can, if you'll suffer my air quotes, evolve into a reasoning being, but that by and large, the human race is vile. And that there are occasional exceptions to this, and the professor is such an exception as he's an exception. But Ned is the everyman. There isn't anything special about Ned's mind or intellect. There, there may be heroic qualities that he has. He could carve a mandolin out of a shell or whatever, out of driftwood. That's a skill. <laughs> no, no, I'm talking from Nemo's perspective. He can also bond with a seal. That's right. <laughs> yes, but that's what I'm saying. What ne- everything that is great about Ned is something that Nemo no longer believes to exist in the common man. And I think this movie very much, it's weird, because on the one hand, it shows Nemo's perspective. But we definitely get a sense from the professor and from Ned, this idea like men lay down their lives for other men. Like the nobility of sacrifice. Like we're just 10 years away from when the greatest generation uh, won World War II. And I feel like this movie's still capturing on that, like brothers in arms, I would die for you, even though I just met you perspective of what humanity is. And I think Ned again and again, where Nemo says to, to Ned, you saved my life. Ned goes, yeah, why did I do that? Because it wasn't a rational act for Ned. Ned wants to escape, but instinctually, Ned is good and will protect another human being even without thinking about it. And therefore, Ned existing proves Nemo's worldview wrong. That scene where he has his bonding moment with Peter Lorre's character, where he like he hits him and then he's like, come on, you can hit me too. It's like it's such a great like bonding moment and it feels very genuine. And it's like it's got a lot of warmth to it. And I kind of want to like talking about Ned and his warmth and stuff. When I was watching it this time, looking at my notes, I kind of I almost felt now. Let me be clear. Kirk Douglas has a genuinely good voice and whale of a tale. I watched this movie Thursday and it has not escaped my brain. I have woken up with that tune in my head. It is very catchy. It's very catchy, but I think it's very telling where that song takes place in this movie because it almost, to me, when I was watching it, it almost feels like Disney doing two things with it. Number one, reminding their audience, this is a Disney film. This is a Disney film. We have a song here. See, see, like this is, we're not totally reinventing the wheel, but it also, in a way, I almost saw it as like damage control to Kirk Douglas's very first scene because he almost comes across a little too rough and tumble and a little too brash. 
And I was like, mm, this is, I feel like this is them just making sure that we know he has a sensitive side. He's a little calmed down because like one thing I didn't catch that my roommate caught when we watched it was I was like, man, he seems like a little bit like, you know, a little bit rough, a little bit more of a jerk. And he was like, yeah, but those guys he was yelling at were con artists in the beginning and he's the one that catches them in the act so i'm like oh that's right and so like for someone who like missed that detail and like didn't realize he was chewing out a person that actually deserved it the song is like another way to almost like soften kirk douglas just a little bit and get us to like oh yeah we like him we like him so what you've just established for me brett is ned land is a disney princess singing his i want song about how one day his princess will come and we'll find his love. And Ned is this all-American character, right? In Nemo's world, if, if Captain Nemo has his way and destroys everything in his path, the Ned lands of the world are going to die. Now, Captain Nemo has genuine beef with people who are kind of at the top, who make decisions about killing people, right? And so Nemo makes this decision, well, I can't beat him, join him, but can't beat him, join him, and I'll just kill everybody. But what he doesn't take into account is that the Neds of the world are actually fun-loving. They catch con artists. They're good people, right? So it makes us kind of, while we can, can, we can kind of get into Nemo here in just a minute, but I think that every man character, that unlikely hero of Ned, if we don't have this character and we just make it about Nemo and the professor, like no one's going to care. Because the professor kind of represents our curiosity at this stuff, our hope that like maybe one day we can use this responsibly and like the the want for that. But then Nemo in and of himself, Nemo is almost like his own, like Nemo's going like the world can't be trusted. And I can go exactly because look at you. With Nemo, with the professor, it's that highbrow kind of curiosity with Ned, it's like, hey, I'm going to grab a harpoon and make this happen. So there are two different kinds of men here that we're talking about. And Nemo considers the Neds of the world to be expendable. And I think this movie is saying Ned Ned's not expendable at all. And Ned even says when one of the warships gets attacked, hey, there were sailors like me on that ship. So here's the funny thing. Do you know what this movie really needs? This movie really needs a woman. Oh, 100%. <laughs> And not just arm candy, right? I had forgotten that there's not a single woman other than the two women that he has his arms around in the beginning. Like, I was like, I was watching and I was like, I could have swore there was like someone like, nope. But here is why this movie needs a woman other than the fact that women should be in everything and there need to be great parts written for women and all of that. We're making an argument about what direction the evolution of the human race is supposed to take. And if there is a woman and she's the options that she sees are Nemo and Aranax and Ned Land and instinctually, while maybe her intellect is great, the one she's drawn to is the one with the best heart rather than the one with with the biggest brain or the best developed philosophy. The If he she instinctively goes for Ned because he's good. He's got a good heart. He represents the future of mankind. 
What a statement that would be. Now, I would prefer if that woman character also has other things to do than fall in love with a man. Note taken, I would like more for her to do. In fact, maybe we should have several women in this movie as if maybe they represent half the human race and only one of them plays this romance. But there's room in this two hour, nine minute movie for a romance. And I think that romance in this instance actually helps us articulate the points the movie is trying to make. I mean, I think the professor could very easily be a female character. There's no reason why it couldn't be. Right. I mean, I was about to say, or his assistant, but that's not as empowering. Let's make the professor, for sure. Interesting. That's fascinating. I did not know that. He is 100% like the best written and most layered character in this film, I think. Uh, Mason... I was blown away. Just Mason's performance is so nuanced. Like from his opening lines of dialogue, you can tell there is something else making this man tick. And like, you know, like he's talking about one thing, but you can tell the purpose behind what he's saying is something different. Like you can feel this underlying like motivation. He's a separatist, right? He's a separatist. He says things like, I'm done with society. I'm not a civilized man. You came as an enemy to destroy me. The real story of the ocean depths, the secrets that are mine alone. Couldn't tell where the film was going. And I think that is also Dia, if he's going to do something honorable or like throw you to the sea, you know, you really don't know because he could, he could do any of those things and they would all fit within his character. And I think for me, it was really awesome rewatching because of the scene where they go on the boat. I thought this was so brilliantly done where they're looking and it's empty, and then you have the barely at sea. So you arrive on this machine, which from what we've been watching, our perspective, this is the bad guy. This is the thing that destroyed our ship and killed all those sailors. So now we're on it, we're exploring it, and the first thing we see of the people that run this is they're having a burial at sea. And the music in that moment is very melancholy, very somber. And for me, at least, it built up this weird, like, sympathy for your villain before you even meet him and you're like oh my gosh like he has the like respect the respect to to give this person a burial at sea but then what makes it even crazier is later on when he reveals he's like you already saw what happened to prisoners so that wasn't even a person from his crew he's now revealing that the person they buried at sea was a prisoner which means a he murdered him but also, which is bad, but weird good side, he's honorable enough to give this person who was a prisoner a proper burial at sea. And that's just so complex of a character. Well, and it's even more layered because like the seal loves him, right? The chef is willing to create these dishes for him. These men are willing to die with him. And they're willing to go to the ends so either he's some sort of a cult leader, <laughs> he feels like some sort of a separatist cult leader, but there is this kind of feeling of, he feels unhinged. And I'll say that because when he sits down at the organ and starts playing, right, it's doom and gloom and despair and the contrast with Ned plinking on his mandolin that he makes himself. And so there is almost this classism that's happening there too. With Nemo and, and Ned. But here's something I want to throw out, because I, I think it's important. We never really find out who that prisoner was who was buried at, at sea in that scene. And I wonder if the person who that was was like the professor 
someone that Nemo hoped he could share his secrets with, and someone who maybe Nemo thought would be the one that he could he could explain his worldview to, and it ended badly, and Nemo had to kill that person. Because it definitely does seem like he's got a relationship with the, And so as he's putting this person to his grave, immediately it almost reincarnates in the professor, who's now aboard the submarine, and he's got another chance at it. But in his heart of hearts, Nemo knows this is just going to end the same way. Nemo keeps trying. Nemo wants to believe that man can be good. He just doesn't. He's desperate to be convinced of it but he can't bring himself to get there. And that, for me, is what's relatable about him, because I'm someone who wants to believe in human goodness, and then I read the newspaper, right? I think that moment with Nemo playing the organ, I thought that was so brilliantly done because of the lighting, the music, and just the look on James Mason's face and like how he was emoting there. I felt that that moment was an externalization of Nemo's like grief and anger at the decision he quote unquote felt he had to make of like, I don't want to do this, but they're making me do this. And if someone has to do it, then it's going to be me. Well, there are these lines where he says so like, here I'm free, uh, far better. They think there's a monster. I was once one of them. They are the assassins. I am the Avenger. He is a separatist through and through. It's so strange that like to avenge, I mean, I, he says he's an avenger. I would say he's seeking revenge, that his family's been murdered and he spends his time getting this revenge as sort of a, a violent activist, right? I think he's had to convince himself that it's some noble goal because in his heart of hearts, if he would not succumb to something as petty as simple revenge, so he has to almost create this false narrative of what it actually is, this loftier goal, because if someone stripped it down and went, no, you're just getting revenge for your wife and son, he would be like, no, there's more behind that. I'm more honorable than just that. But I'm not, I'm honorable, but I'm not civilized, right? Because civilized means that I would have to hook into what society says is civil and their idea of civility is murder and obedience, right? And I want to be free. Okay, Professor Aranax, what do we think about him? He's exposition, and like he's what I like to call the facilitator character. It's like kind of like, what, what was his name? See, I can't even remember. It was so bland. The main character of the Fantastic Beast films, who, who, does, who has absolutely no arc. I haven't seen any of the others. I'm only referencing the first film when I discuss that film, because I did not want to see the others. But his character has absolutely no change throughout the film at all. He's literally only there to introduce our side characters into the world of magic and have our side characters change. And I think that the professor is being used in a similar sense here. He's a facilitator character. He's the one that gets us into the story. But then, like we said, Ned is the one that gets us out. Even his psychic, Peter Lorre, starts like realizing that he's kind of getting sucked up and into the cult that is Nemo. And he's falling for him. And it's actually that moment. It's like once the professor starts falling for Nemo's whole shtick, that's when Ned starts to take center stage and take control of the film. So it's almost like he's literally just there to get us to ask questions to get into the plot so that someone else can get us out of it. Well, Nemo flatters Aranax, right, to get him to be part of his crew. Um, he even starts separating him from his friends. He does things like, oh, you're special. I've read your books. 
there's so much more you don't know though, right? And so it's this kind of He's a so manipulative. Yes, yes. It's almost this recruitment into his little group. So on the one hand, I could do one of my famous rants and talk about how boring Professor Aranax is. And I would if that would amuse us, but I feel like I've been there and I've done that before. So instead of doing that, I'm going to take a different view that this movie is positing a relationship between Professor Aranex and Ned Land that is predicated on Freudian psychology. That Ned Land is the id, the, the person who does acts on instinct and does what's right, but that Professor Aranax is the superego, that higher version of yourself that is entirely rational and sort of like the two of them together make a statement about what mankind is, right? These two separate ways of being good. You can be good on this intellectual plane and see the bigger picture and look at the world view of, of the entire planet. And then Ned is just in his moment-to-moment, day-by-day living, a different type of goodness. They're actually what Nemo wants to do is separate that superego from that id, right? He wants mankind to be this entirely rational, emotionless thing. And I think the professor sort of symbolizes that. The funny part is Nemo doesn't. Nemo is intensely passionate. And for all of his arguments that he's the rational one in the room, he's the one who had the trauma event, he's the one who's stuck in his trauma, he's angry, he's hurt, he's the one with trust issues. He wants to believe that he and the professor are the same, but in actuality, they're not. Nemo thinks he's the professor, but he's damaged. I feel like Ned is better than Nemo, and Aranax is better than Nemo, Nemo is the most interesting of the three of them. But but Nemo like is just seeing these different visions of goodness and he doesn't measure up. I really like that. I think that's a great way to look at that with the super ego and the id. That's like that that really tracks well. I think that's fantastic. And Freud is so huge at this point in psychology, right? We haven't yet rejected him. So Conseil, right? He's the I mean, I would almost say he's the comic relief, but you guys made it Ned Land the comic relief. And I'm like, yeah, he's kind of the comic relief, too. Ned is funnier. Yeah, uh, but he does. Conseil really helps Ned to become more altruistic. And I think he moves Ned along an arc from like rogue. I'm only in it to me for me to companion and hero. I agree, because their their relationship is kind of what ends up being the heart of of the movie in a way because you have the professor being very analytical and then you have Ned being all physical and like, he's kind of that bridge between the two that like gets them to kind of come together and work together. And that's like, it's a really great way of saying like, like you were talking about Larry with like, uh, like Nemo wanting to separate the id and the super ego, but like, that's not, but mankind will never be unemotional. And so like, kind of the the idea that these parts of humanity need to work together and that is the ideal humanity is when it all works together well and if you try to separate it you know so i think yeah that trifecta of like one on each side and then peter laurie in the middle connecting the two yeah that would make him the ego right but I'm, what's interesting about kunsei is the way that he's set up he you know and because he's peter laurie and peter laurie often plays the second banana sort of roles like he did in um, 
arsenic and old lace, I think he's he's in a very similar sort of position, is initially when we meet him, he drops the chest. He says that Ned was getting the chest and not him. And we start to think like, oh, this is our little backstabby kind of like double dealer or or just weak person who at the first sign of trouble. He's like a LeFou that might just be like. Yes, LeFou is a great example to this. But through his exposure to Ned, he finds his manhood. This movie is so much about the power of brotherly love to elevate a person. And when they become friends in that scene where they're punching each other, that is Conseil becoming, we're in the brotherhood of man together. That's all it takes. Ned goes, now we're friends. You punched, I punched you, you punched me. Now we're friends. We just punched the jerk out of each other. Because we're equals, right? If you can both slug each other and take a punch from each other, then that means you're equals. You're not better than me. You're the same as me. That's right. You're the same as me. We are the, the same class and the same. Yeah, that would not work with the professor, right? No, that professor, no, no way. It's it's interesting just because of what the way the, the political media climate is right now now there are obviously things in this film that aren't that have not aged well and you know are very much of the time but i think this element here is almost like very much a theme or an element that needs to be brought up again because we're all focusing on how masculinity has been a detriment and this film i think in this moment like this is a moment where you say but this is more positive element of masculinity this this brotherly love this i watch out for my fellow man this no one is beneath me we're the same like kind of brotherly connection i think is an element of masculinity that is positive and should be shared more throughout film oh i love it i love it well let's talk about protagonist problems who do we think the protagonist of this movie is I think I am. Laughing already. I think I in the audience am the protagonist in the movie because I was the only one. How about Esmeralda the seal? Could she be the protagonist? The problem here is the the movie at, at some point seems to think the protagonist is Professor Aranax, particularly early on in the movie. You could also make the case that it's Ned's movie because he's sort of our leading man. Really, this is Nemo's movie although Nemo's not in the first 40 minutes. And so for me, I mean, I feel like I keep circling the drain on this point with every movie that we do, Andy, but I don't even know who the protagonist is. Uh, All of the above? None of the above? I think it's a twofold. I think Nemo is your antagonist, and I think your protagonist is a twofold between the professor and Ned. I think Ned is the protagonist. I think Aranax is the narrator. And I think uh, Nemo is the uh, antagonist. See, but here's the problem. Like, when we talk about the function of a protagonist, are we seeing the movie through any of their eyes specifically? There's times where Professor Aranax is our narrator in the same way that Bakira is our narrator in The Jungle Book, but I'm not with him. And even when Ned Land is doing things, Sometimes I'm like, I'm not really, I know where you're coming from. This stuff looks like good treasure. Why don't you steal it? But I'm not really with him in those moments. I'm like, you idiot. You shouldn't be stealing. You're going to cause problems. When he goes off the beach, I know that he shouldn't go off the beach. He's constant. I'm not really seeing it through his perspective either. And then when you ask who changes and grows, which is my other measure of a protagonist, 
I don't know. I guess Conseil is the one who changes and grows over the course of this movie. I wish we saw a little bit more from Nemo. That would indicate that Nemo changed. Circumstances change. But I think the professor is still the same person he always was. And that Ned is just going to go back to his old life of going from harbor to harbor with dancing girls. I just don't know. See, I don't think so. I think Ned's different. I think Ned starts out that way with the dancing girls and the, you know, kind of... What do you see Ned doing? What do you see Ned doing after this movie? Well, he's thwarted the will of evil. That's what I'm asking you. I mean, is that going to change him as a person? I think he's the unlikely hero that I hope is going to make changes, but he doesn't seem to be, he seems to be more serious at the end of this movie and a lot less punch drunk than he is at the beginning. Love would change him, Andy. That female character who's not in this movie. It would. And he is itching for it. He is begging for love this whole time, right? His song is about yearning for love. He talks to the seal about love. He talks to Kensei about love. But that would be something that would demonstrate to me that he's not going to immediately go back to his dissolute, bon vivant life. That, you know, if he actually fell in love on this journey, I think he just signs up for another ship. I think he immediately goes back to town and tells the honeys of his latest adventure and hooks up with dancing girls. And I think he signs up for more voyages. I don't see that he's learned anything. He's survived but he hasn't learned. And that, for me, is fundamentally what's missing from this movie. If Nemo lived through this movie and became a different person or made different choices, I might say, oh, he's sacrificing himself to save others in a different way. At the point where he makes the decision to sacrifice himself, he's already been shot. So it's like, it's not really a choice. And it doesn't even seem, it's also his decision seems kind of like a selfish one, too. Where he's just like, oh, they screwed everything up. Well, then they're not getting anything. I'm not sure at the end of this movie who is redeemed and who is damned. Because you could make the argument that in destroying, allowing Volcania to be destroyed, Aranax and Ned Land have failed on this adventure and has pr have proven Nemo's point that man can't be trusted with this power. And so you could say we're all damned from it. You could also say we're all redeemed from it because Nemo destroys it. Like... I just don't know. And without knowing what the movie's trying to say, without a clear point of view as to who my protagonist is, I am so lost, you guys. I'm so lost. Well, what is this movie trying to say? Let's talk about some of the themes of it. What are some of the themes we see in this movie? So, yeah, well, there's the theme. Like, it's interesting because your protagonist or lack thereof affects multiple aspects throughout the film including the theme, including the pacing. Like if you were following a singular point of view through this, I do not think the pacing would have been as bad as it is. I don't think it would have taken felt as long because you're ping pong. Like I said, you have five minutes with Ned and then you spend 10 with a whole other character. And so then you start to wonder like, why am I following this person? And like, so scenes don't feel as, as it doesn't have as fluid of a pacing as it should. And in terms of theme... It feels like we're reading a comic book, right? Yeah, it feels like the plot is the further adventures of Captain Nemo. Like, that's the plot kind of thing. And that being said, because of that episodic way of going about things, that, that approach, you could argue that there are small elements of the themes strewn throughout each of the little vignettes, each of the scenes. And that may have been kind of the intent because you have this almost like... I'm just now thinking of this, and it might work, maybe it doesn't. Let's see. Each scene is a battle. 
Each scene is a battle for humanity. You have Ned stealing the treasure. That's one tally for Nemo, humanity zero. Then you have like kind of the battle with the squid, which is humanity one, Nemo zero, because they, they rally together. And then you have, but Ned threw out the bottles and he brought the rest of the government. Government's going to screw you over. So that's Nemo two. It's almost like each scene is like a little, okay, this is what we know Nemo's viewpoint of humanity. Let's see if he's right or wrong. Here's another scene. Here's an example. Is he right or wrong? And like, so it's almost like a discussion, quote unquote, like an argument going back and forth. And then at the end, you have, you know, the bomb and like the final statement of like, maybe we're not ready. I would say this goes very much in line with what I've prepared for this is that there are two themes for this movie. The first theme is that man is inherently good and noble. And the second theme is man is inherently evil and cruel. And they are both somehow the theme of this movie at the same time. And we're constantly trying to reconcile those two themes. Uh, the point that you just made, Brett, that really hits me hard. If Ned never threw the bottles, then Nemo takes the professor back to the island and shares his secrets with the professor because Nemo is actually won over to the idea that maybe there are men he can trust his secrets to. But Ned is actually the one who ironically proves the opposite by bringing all the world's governments there. Okay, maybe the theme is this then. Man is good. Men, plural. Mankind is terrible. What's that quote from Men in Black where Tommy Lee Jones is talking to Will Smith and he's just like, a man is smart, but people are dumb, stupid, panicky animals. And he's like, yesterday you knew there was nothing beyond this world, and now you know different. Imagine what you'll know tomorrow. I think the good versus evil is definitely the theme there in wrestling with what is good and what is evil. I also see like the idea of the need to freedom and escape, because in, this, in a lot of ways, Ned and Nemo are similar characters. Nemo wants to be free and Ned wants to be free. They both want to be free, right? There's a natural world versus technology, right? How do we live in a world? It's interesting because Nemo's almost this bioactivist. You know, you think about people who do things to save the planet in, in very violent ways today, right? Nemo's doing very similar things with the Nautilus and just to save the natural world. And so in, in his mind, there's a scorecard and, and there's a sum total and everything balances out somehow. And the other theme, theme I have is revenge, straight up revenge. This is Nemo trying to get his pound of flesh for the, or more than a pound of flesh for the loss of his wife and daughter, which I think is the most incredible part of this movie when he reveals that. Because in that moment, you start to see him a lot differently. Of course he's doing it. It makes him human. Okay, pitch time. So there's a movie bearing this title from 1916. There's also this movie. There is a TV series from 1997, kind of a some sort of made-for-TV, like, miniseries. And there's allegedly something currently in the works at Disney as a series called Nautilus, right? At one point, this was about maybe somewhere between five and ten years ago, we were supposed to get a modern remake directed by David Fincher. But that did not come to fruition due to creative differences between him and Disney. Which I wonder why it's only David Fincher. It's not like his aesthetic is perfect for, you know, Disney. But for real, though, his vision would have been pretty incredible, I bet. It would be. What would we do with this material? Andy, 
I instinctively know I'm about to steal your pitch. So Okay, go ahead. So, no, no, I don't want to steal it. Why, why don't you do it? I have a second one. You want me to go first. All right. I want a stage musical. Is that your pitch? That's a tragedy. I want, well, we have to have Whale of a Tail in there because it has been sticking in my head all week. Nemo needs to be the protagonist. We need to see him lose his family. And we need to see him gain everything back in his development of the Nautilus. And this pride swells. And this pr- and then he becomes as destructive as the people who uh, killed his family. And then instead of expanding his desire to help mankind through the friendship, you know, the intervening friendship of the professor and Ned and Kansai, he tries to destroy them all. And his pride's his downfall. Other than the part that you made it a stage musical, I felt like, oh, Andy's pitch is going to be the same as mine, which is a Nemo's origin story that we spend time. And so so in a way, I was right. I was about to steal your pitch. Brett, you want to do your pitch while I come up with another one? I'll, I'll improvise something. I'll have it. So mine's like kind of a two part like thing. I think I think part one should be a relatively like don't change too much because we have great amazing themes here. We just need a through line and we need an actual like spot. We need a trajectory. That's what we need most of all. We need it. But I think that you could do a really great kind of call and response two part film with the first one being very similar to this and but really, really honing in on that theme of that question of whether or not humanity is responsible or uh, enough to handle this technology. And so then you end it with the, the Nautilus being destroyed and all that stuff. And then your part two is like a modern day, we discover that technology. And part two would answer that question, have we learned? Are we capable now? Ooh, like the ruins of Volcania. We're walking along there and we're finding the remnants, right? There's something cool about that. Okay, so my incredibly well-developed pitch, which I've spent so much time on. I'm going to go comedy with this movie. And uh, I'm going to go with the idea that Nemo sent out five golden tickets around the world for a ride in his submarine. And Professor Aranax got one. And Ned Land got another and Conseil. And every time they go on these little scenarios, one of them proves unfit for the secrets of nuclear power. And then the crew comes out and sings like this Oompa Loompa kind of song about why this man can't inherit the power. And at the very end, it is the young, innocent boy on the submarine who gets the secrets of nuclear power. And uh, starts driving the nuclear-powered submarine. It, this is a completely original pitch. It, it is not... I have yet to hear anything similar to this at all. Truly original. Not at all. I'm very pleased with it. Oh, what's this? I'm being sued by the Road Dahl's estate. Somehow Disney and Road Dahl got together in a class action lawsuit against me. I apologize. Well, Brett, you have to come back again because you really bring out the best in Larry, for sure. <laughs> Can I add one small thing that I want to that I just want to bring up and this is just the seal. Can we just talk about how this is an element of filmmaking of the showmanship of filmmaking that is a lost art and that is yeah having a live animal on there a trained seal and just like building a relationship with said animal in a character like on film like we don't do that anymore and it's a shame. The seal does this great thing that a dog does in a movie he kisses Captain Nemo and we immediately start thinking, well, maybe Captain Nemo isn't all bad, right? 
Because if a dog or a seal can love him, then maybe he's got a strain that's lovable too. All right, Brett, you got to come back. But yeah, it's just an element of it that I think is, is so great that we just kind of lost that art in film. But I had so much fun coming back. Thank you for having me. This was an absolute blast. I love talking about film with you guys. I don't get to do it so often anymore. So, Well, Brett, you'll want to listen to this episode, but you'll also want to listen to our next episode because next week we are doing, at my own personal request, Gargoyles the Movie, The Heroes Awaken. Awakening. So if you want to find this on Disney+, Plus, it is the first five episodes of Gargoyles. Now I know. Now, I know that some of you out there listened to D- DuckTales and you watched it like it was a movie and thing at 10. It is that good. I'm so excited to hear Andy's perspective on this. Jonathan Frakes is wonderful in it. Like, it's, it's so great. Like, genuinely good cast. Gargoyles is beautiful. For a time, I think Del Toro discussed how he wanted to make gargoyles into a live action film and if del toro did that i think it would be gorgeous but yeah gargoyles is fascinating that's wonderful i will definitely listen in on that one i'm excited now oh it's, it's so good all-star cast too well fans if you like what you're hearing will you do us a favor and share this podcast with another disney or classic movie fan and please check out our once upon a disney facebook page you can tweet us at, at andy redwine or at larry brenner six or drop us a line in our mailbag at once upon a disney podcast at gmail.com so until next time friends see you real soon see you real soon